If you would grab a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. That's where we'll begin uh, this part of our worship, where we study from God's Word. Acts chapter 17. We have a number of visitors this morning. We want to say how much we appreciate you being here. Thank you for your presence. And I think there is a word of explanation due for the fact that I am in Babylon this morning, which is that this is our VBS. Our VBS begins tonight, and we'll go tonight, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night. And uh, so what has happened here is that a lot of our fine people, let's just say the ladies, have uh, made a lot of this uh, set here because as part of our VBS, we usually have a time where we try to act out some of the scenarios in the Bible. This year, we're doing the life of Daniel, and uh, so we're going to have people who are going to act out certain parts that we're going to be studying uh, to try to help get those scenes into the minds of the children as, uh, as they learn together, and of course, anybody else who wants to be here and be a part of that. I do want to say, uh, I've been told to tell all those who are going to be in the skits tonight, if you signed up to do that or otherwise were notified that you're involved in that, that we're going to meet here at 4 o'clock tonight, and in fact, we're going to meet here about an hour before we start each day this week, so 6 o'clock on Monday to Wednesday, to be here and just get everything prepared. By the way, you got to watch out for that narrator. I hear he's awesome, so uh, be ready for that. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that, and I hope you are too. We'll be here tonight at 5, and I want to remind you uh, that there are classes for all ages, including adults. Uh, the book of Daniel is for adults too, and has a lot of interesting and powerful lessons for us, particularly the idea of how God's people live when they're in a foreign land, when they're surrounded by evil people. And those are lessons that are helpful to us as we live among people who don't respect God. And so it'll be helpful for us to study those things. Zach will be teaching that class for adults. So if you have the opportunity, be here tonight at 5 o'clock and each night this week at 7. Uh, we'd love to have you here. But thank you for being here, and I want to say welcome to those who are visiting with us. I will do my best, by the way, not to trip over anything up here. If I do, it's all part of the sermon. I intended to do it all along. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 5. Acts 17 and verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. We've been studying this year about the kingdom and how God has acted in history to bring about the Messiah and then to establish his people and establish his reign and rule. And we talked about how Jesus came preaching that the kingdom is here, and that was the essence of his message. And we talked about how that kingdom has two senses. It is a now kingdom and a not yet kingdom. And then for the last several months, we've been trekking through how Satan attempted to attack the kingdom. We talked about how he attacked the kingdom through persecution. We've talked about how he attacked the kingdom through corruption. And we talked about last month how he attacked the kingdom through conflict among the church. And I want to just delve into that one more time for our time this month. And then next month, we're going to jump into a different phase of our studies of the kingdom. I want us to look at how Satan attacks the kingdom like he does here. In this situation where some of the people who have been believing in the gospel in Thessalonica are now brought before the city authorities and accused of something that's not really true. They are accused of 
not serving Caesar because they serve Jesus. And so what I want to do this morning is talk about that kind of idea, what we're going to call this morning attacking the kingdom through misinformation, how Satan is going to attack the kingdom by spreading things that have a little bit of truth in them but are not actually true, what we might call ancient fake news. There's a little bit of truth in it, but really the essence of the story is false. And I want us to see not only how Satan has done that in the ancient world through we'll see in these stories in the book of Acts, but how he does that today. How you and I are going to battle people who have misperceptions about what the gospel is and who we are and how we can respond to that in a way that's fitting and appropriate. So what I want to do is just talk about some situations here that tell us different things Satan said or convinced people about about the gospel in ancient times. The first is this. Satan says that Christianity is dangerous. You see that here. Look in verse 5 again with me. Acts 17 and verse 5. It says, but the Jews were jealous. So keep that in your mind. That's the actual motive behind what is said. They're jealous because, of course, there is not a big movement of people spreading into Judaism. Instead, there is this great movement of people from both Jews and Gentiles who are becoming Christians, and that makes the Jews jealous. So verse 5 again, the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city's authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received him, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So they have turned the world upside down, and now they've come here. They're invading our town, and now they're telling everybody not to listen to the decrees of Caesar because they believe in a different king. Now, those are highly inflammatory charges. They are charges that this is a dangerous movement. And if you don't stop it, they're going to get us all in trouble. Because in the ancient Roman world, Caesars didn't usually die natural deaths. They usually died by being plotted against. And so Caesars seem particularly paranoid about groups meeting somewhere because every group that's meeting somewhere could be the group that's planning to assassinate them. Most of them were assassinated, by the way. It's not as if that fear was unfounded. And so if they're going around meeting in these secret groups and talking about a different king and telling us not to obey Caesar, they are trouble. Now, you can see what's happening here. Did the Christians preach another king? They sure did. But they did not say, don't obey Caesar. In fact, their king says, render to Caesar those things that are Caesar's. So there is misinformation here, and it is misinterpreted. It is spun to say that Christianity is dangerous. What's interesting is that's exactly what happened the last place Paul was. Turn back the page to Acts 16. and Acts 16 and verse 16. Acts 16 and verse 16, it says... As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Don't you have that happen where you get so annoyed you just have to cast somebody's demons out? It happens all the time to me. Verse 19, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, 
They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them out into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, listen to it, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. So I want you to remember why why this happened. This happened because Paul cast the demon out of this slave girl who was making her owner's money. So it says specifically in verse 19, when they saw they weren't going to make any more money, they got mad and they trumped up some charges and they brought Paul and Silas before the authorities. And the message is simply this. They're disturbing our city and they're trying to convince people to do things that are illegal. So they're dangerous. And in fact... The city authorities believed them to the degree that they beat Paul and Silas with rods without even a questioning or a trial, despite the fact that they're Roman citizens. That's going to come back to haunt them a little later in the chapter. But what I want you to see is, here's that message again. Wherever they go, people are saying, this is a dangerous teaching. We can't let these people keep preaching this. Something must be done. Turn over to Acts 24. Acts 24. Later on, Paul is arrested and he is brought before the governor, who's a man named Felix at this time. And I want you to see that this is a list of charges against him by the Jews who are accusing him. I want you to see if you can spot the misinformation here. Acts 24 and verse 4. Acts 24 and verse 4. But to detain you no further, I beg you in kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So Paul is a plague. Boy, that is kind of an insult, isn't it? He is a plague. He's a sickness. And everywhere he goes, he causes trouble. He starts riots throughout the world. Now, is that true? Well, it's a little bit true, isn't it? You read through the book of Acts. Everywhere Paul goes, what happens? He goes in the synagogue. People listen to him for a while. And then they say, nope, no more of you. Get out of here. And then when he starts preaching somewhere else, they'll follow him. And they'll sometimes cause riots or sometimes they'll stone him. Or sometimes they'll talk to the people and say, we got to get this guy out of town. So there, there is some truth to that, but it's not the truth that Paul is going around starting riots. It is instead that there is a message that a lot of people are willing to riot over. He says, uh, it also says in verse eight, he, or verse 6, I'm sorry, he even tried to profane the temple. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but that is a false accusation. So they want Paul punished because Paul is dangerous. He is a plague. Take a step back from that. Isn't it amazing that the message of Jesus, Jesus who preached peace and nonviolent resistance, who talks about reconciliation and love, that message is dangerous? Isn't it amazing how that can get twisted? Isn't it amazing how Satan can work to convince people that something good is something bad? Now, part of the dangerous accusation, is that this is the accusation in this time that would have some real punch. Nobody wants to tangle with Caesar. Caesar is always willing to put down rebellions forcibly. So if anything's going to get people's attention, it's that Christianity is a dangerous message. And it's also true that if you're a city official, not only are you scared of Caesar, 
But you don't want people just let loose in your community or your region who are going around causing riots and being a plague. You're probably going to have to tangle with them again later. Might as well punish them now. You can see how they have to speak the ruler's language. But what I want you to see, please hear me, is that the accusation, whatever it may be, the accusation will always be tailored to whatever offends and upsets and motivates the people of that culture and that time. Satan is going to portray the Christian message as offensive and upsetting, and something has to be done about it by people who don't want to believe it. And the point I'm making is that the misinformation doesn't have to be true to be effective. In fact, that little bit of truth makes the misinformation that much more dangerous. The second thing is Satan says that Christianity is immoral. I'll just remind you, we're not even going to turn there, just briefly remind you that when the message of Jesus' salvation is first preached in the book of Acts, in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descends on the apostles and they begin to speak in tongues and they are accused, they are full of new wine. The first thing people say is, this is ridiculous, it's a bunch of drunks. They are immoral. Now, that's sort of brushed aside, but I just want you to notice that that is often the way this response is given to the message of the gospel. There are more serious and more persistent charges, though. I'll call your attention again to chapter 24 and verse 6. Look again at Acts 24 and verse 6. It says, He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. It almost happened, they say. You know, he almost profaned the temple, but thank goodness we were there. And we stopped it. That is just not true. So, Paul had been preaching among the Gentiles. And I'm sure that raised the eyebrows of a lot of Jews in Jerusalem. But he's also been teaching, not just among the Gentiles, but he's been teaching that you don't have to keep the law of Moses to be saved. Some of those same things we've been reading in our daily readings this week in Galatians. And as a result... The Jews in Jerusalem are upset about that. I want you to turn with me back to Acts 21. Acts 21. So the Jews come to believe that Paul is teaching the same thing to other Jews, saying, stop obeying Torah. And that's not exactly true. That is what we would call misinformation. Acts 21 and verse 17. Acts 21, 17, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his, through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses." telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. So what is described here is a kind of compromise. 
James knows that the Jews in Jerusalem have been misinformed about Paul. You see that in verse 21. He says specifically, they have been told about you. They've been informed, but it's something that's not really true. It's not really what Paul has been teaching. Paul's focus is not going around telling Jews, you've got to stop doing this. His focus is more on preaching the gospel to Gentiles and then telling them, you don't have to keep Torah in order to be right with God. So what James wants is for Paul to give a show of faith. You go keep this vow, and then they'll stop worrying that you're going around teaching this. So go into the temple. And that's what he does. Look in verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! Isn't that great? Help! What's going to happen? Paul's here. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gate was shut. He's teaching everybody against the law and against the temple. Seize him, and they do. And you see, he has defiled the temple. I want you to see what's happening. They are taking some of Paul's teachings, those very things we've been studying, and they're twisting them, taking them in the worst way possible, and then combining those false accusations with fear, like, help, the plague is here, the man is here. What's going to happen next? He has defiled the temple. Do you see how that happened too? They thought he might have defiled the temple, but then that slowly inches toward, you know, he must have. Surely he would have. He probably did. You know what he did. And so that by Acts 24, they're all affirming that he did something he didn't actually do. That's the way misinformation works. But the overall message is that this is an evil man who is trying to get us to disobey God. He must be stopped. Isn't it amazing that a message based on a radical morality that outstrips the law of Moses, is accused of being immoral. And I also want you to notice that that immorality is really defined by whatever is traditional and accepted by a broader society. In this case, it's the Jews. But you know, the Jews are not the only ones who condemn Christianity as immoral. To a Roman, it's immoral to say that the gods should not be worshipped. To a modern American, it is immoral to say things are wrong. That's just the way our minds are trained to work. So, Satan says that Christianity is immoral, and in doing so, he spreads this misinformation. The third thing I want us to see is that Satan says that Christianity is weird. That's the idea that if we take the strangest, strange elements of Christianity and then we put that in the headline, we can somehow undermine the influence. Now, sometimes that is an appeal to what is popular. What do other people think? What's the general consensus about this religion? So you have statements like these. This is Acts 17.6 we read earlier. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. A lot of potential meanings for that. I'll say for my part, I believe what is meant by turn the world upside down is they make a mess everywhere they go and nobody likes it. Okay, They're trying to subvert everything good. 
Acts 28, 22, but we desire to hear from you. This is some Jews in Rome. We desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Only thing we know about it, we don't even know what you teach. We just know everybody hates it. It's not popular. It's a strange new teaching. It turns the world upside down. It's just too weird. But I especially want to show you this about the strangest, strange idea of all, which is the idea of resurrection. I want you to go with me to Acts 17. Acts 17. Acts 17 and verse 8. No, I want verse 18. Acts 17, verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. The Athenians are unique because they like strange things. They want to hear about the weird stuff. So that's what Paul does. He comes to the Areopagus, which was the well-known place for them to have a public meeting, and he begins to tell them about the God that they don't know. And he talks about all the gods. You worship all of these gods, but I saw one that was the unknown God. Let me tell you about him. He is the God who made everything. He made the world. He made people. He set history the way it is because he wants people to seek him. And you know what he's done? He has proven all of this by raising a man from the dead. Look at verse 30. Acts 17 and verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Isn't it staggering? It's staggering to me that they can listen to Paul completely dismantle their whole idol system. Just say, you know what, all these idols are garbage. There's one God, you need to serve him. He does not serve like this. You're doing it all wrong. And they don't bat an eye. Oh, okay, that's interesting. But when he says, God raised a man from the dead, they say, oh, that's ridiculous. Isn't it amazing that the one thing that gets them motivated is that that's just too weird. No way, God. I mean, we could talk about every kind of God in the universe. We, have, we may have missed one or two. But, but the idea that any God could raise somebody from the dead is just too much. And as people talk about the resurrection, that is what they say about it. They understand what Paul is teaching, but they attach to it the idea that it's weird or outlandish or ridiculous or even crazy. Throw me over to Acts 25. I'll show you that. Acts 25. In Acts 25 and verse 19, this is where Festus is talking to Agrippa. He says, rather they had certain points of dispute with him, talking about Paul, about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. And so, of course, Festus says, well, I don't know how to decide on cases where people say other people are alive when the others say they're dead. So, in chapter 26, I want you to see when Paul answers this accusation. Acts 26 and verse 8. Acts 26 and verse 8. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Why is it unbelievable? Why is it something you can't accept that God would raise the dead? And so when Paul starts talking about the resurrection, Festus interrupts him. Look down in verse 24. Acts 26 and 24. As he was saying these things in his defense, particularly in verse 23, the 
rising from the dead, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of, out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. See what he says? I can't listen to this, Paul. This is crazy. In fact, I wonder what Festus is doing by talking in such a loud voice as if he is playing to the crowd. Isn't this guy crazy? You're just out of your mind, Paul. It is not misinformation to say that Christians believe in the resurrection. That's not what I'm saying. The misinformation is to attach the judgment to it that says Christians believe something nobody believes. Christians believe something that's impossible. Christians just must be crazy. This is just too weird to be true. That's what happens in the first century and shortly thereafter. In fact, that's what happens throughout time. Is that people, I believe inspired by Satan, take things in the worst way and attach those judgments to them and then spread that misinformation. This is not from the Bible, but this is from the letters of Pliny. Pliny was a local governor in basically what's modern-day Turkey. And Pliny is writing to the emperor because he was going to investigate Christians. And I want you to see what he says because it indicates some of the assumptions he was working on, some of the misinformation that led him to this um, interrogation. They, this is some Christians he talked to, they declared that the sum total of their guilt and error amounted to no more than this. They had met regularly before dawn on a fixed day to chant verses alternately among themselves in honor of Christ as if to a God, and also to bind themselves by oath, not for any criminal purpose, but to abstain from theft, robbery, and adultery, to commit no breach of trust, and not to deny a deposit when called upon to restore it. After this ceremony, it had been their custom to disperse and reassemble later to take food of an ordinary, harmless kind. Can you hear in the background of that what he thought must have been true? Because they're binding themselves by an oath not for criminal purposes, because that's what people were saying. Christians get together, and they are, they're doing their agreements and their covenants, and they're talking because they want to commit themselves to do wrong together. And you know what? They eat food but they don't just eat any food. They eat flesh and blood. And he says, oh, no, no, they said they just ate food of an ordinary harmless kind. But, you know, they just eat food. Do you see the, the idea? Taking those little bits of information and then twisting them in the worst way. That is how Satan works. That was misinformation. Probably what's happening is there are accusations of cannibalism for Christians. They are just too weird. Why would anybody want to join a group where you go eat flesh and blood? And so suddenly, Christians are not only ostracized, but people are hesitant to even consider what they teach. So Satan says Christianity is dangerous and immoral and weird. The question is, how do Christians respond to those kinds of things? I want you to go with me to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, because 1 Peter is helpful and giving us sort of a game plan for how we respond to people who make those kinds of judgments about us in the world. <clears throat> the first thing I would say about how Christians respond when people get, have information, misinformation about us. And, and by the way, that is a frustrating feeling, isn't it? Don't you get frustrated when you hear people say things about you 
that aren't actually true, when you see on TV accusations made or claims made about something you believe or think, and it's misrepresented, it is a frustrating feeling. And I want us to see what the biblical response is to that kind of misinformation. The first thing Christians do to respond to that is Christians live a pure life. That we begin with the idea that people's misunderstandings and false claims just can't stick if you actually know us. 1 Peter 2 and verse 11. 1 Peter 2 and verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So he says, keep your conduct pure because people are trying to speak evil against you. They are looking for something to condemn. And he says, don't give them anything to shoot at. Now, that doesn't mean, please understand me, that doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect and that if anybody ever sees anything that we do wrong, suddenly our influence is shot and the whole process is ruined. But it does mean that lapses and, and sins should not be a part of our pattern of life. It does mean that when somebody sees me in some situation like that, I can say, you know what, I messed up there. I shouldn't have done that. You see, hypocrisy is not the idea that we occasionally mess up. Hypocrisy is the idea that we act like we don't, and we can't admit it. Hypocrisy is the idea that we continue in that sin and then pretend we don't. Instead, what we should do is have a way of life that people don't have anything to criticize when they try. And I think it's important to note that having a pure life is going to produce a certain kind of reaction in people. We need to be ready for this. It's in 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4. Look at this with me. There is an odd kind of reaction here. 1 Peter 4 and verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatries. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. That word malign means to speak evil. He says when we stop doing the things we used to do, we will, when we live in a way that's different from the world, people are going to notice and they are going to hate it. And they're going to speak evil of you because of it. They're going to be surprised when you don't do what they do. And then they're going to get mad at you for not doing what they do. So, in case you're keeping score at home, what that means is, if you live a pure life, they're going to speak evil of you. And if you live like them, they're going to speak evil of you. Either way, they're going to speak evil of you. So that's not really optional. Misinformation is a reality. But... I should live a pure life so that those accusations are proven wrong to people who have honest hearts, to people who are sincere. They can see there's nothing here. I must have been misinformed about it. So Paul can say, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Isn't it great to be able to say something like that? Everything they're saying about me, I can categorically deny. Each part of it is wrong because Paul had the life to back up what he's saying. 
Second, Christians respond to misinformation by explaining when we have the opportunity. Go with me to chapter 3, 1 Peter 3 and verse 14. 1 Peter 3 and verse 14. It says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So you see what happens. Always be prepared to give a defense, he says. Be ready to speak when the time comes. Sometimes we will be able to speak in our own defense. And people will ask us, why do you do what you do? What do you believe? What is it that draws you to be a Christian? And we will have the opportunity to speak. And we need to be ready. One of the most disheartening things about misinformation is how powerless we are. We can't fight every misconception. We can't counter everything that we hear about us, but we can work person by person as we have the chance. And so you see that. You see when Peter says, oh, we're not drunk. It's the third hour of the day. You see Paul. He says, let me tell you about the true God who I really believe in, not what you've heard. And so Paul tells Felix, I haven't done any of the things you're accusing me of. In fact, as I studied these stories this week, I I was very much impressed by how much it is important for us to pick our battles. Paul had trouble with this. Every time somebody has a misconception about Paul, Paul says, let me talk to them to a fault. Because when there's a riot in Ephesus and thousands of people are gathered in the theater shouting basically for his blood, Paul says, I want to go talk to them. And the the brethren say, uh, no. No, you're not doing that. Paul says, I want to go talk to them. When the Jews are in the temple and they're rioting and throwing them out of the temple, he says, can I just talk to them, please? And of course, he, he nearly dies as a result of that little speech. It is important that we be able to pick our battles and say, you know, there are times where we need wisdom. Is this person sincere in what they're saying or asking? Or are they just trying to score points on me? Am I just going to get shouted down? They're just trying to embarrass me? What's really happening here? But when we see opportunities, we need to be ready. So let me, let me just briefly say the kind of misinformation I believe that you and I are up against in our time. People today believe that Christians are hateful. The fact that the Bible condemns homosexuality means that people say Christians hate homosexuals. Calling a behavior wrong has become, in our time, hate speech. Now, that is misinformation. So that means I need to be ready to carefully and calmly explain that just because I disagree with something you do doesn't mean I hate you. It means I disagree with something that you do. That we all have and we all desperately need sexual discipline. Every one of us. No one is exempt. That God's message is a message of love for all people. And that God also loves us too much to leave us the way that we are. And so that has meant change for me. And it will mean change for anyone the gospel reaches. But to be able to carefully explain piece by piece without getting upset... Just because people have been misinformed doesn't mean I'm hateful. 
People today believe that Christians are anti-intellectual. Let me give you some synonyms there. We're anti-science. We are stupid. We are backward. We are antiquated. We are superstitious. This is a misconception. To be ready means I need to be ready to carefully and calmly explain that, for example, Jesus tells us to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind. That my mind is involved in my faith. That I don't suspend my thinking when I begin to serve Jesus. My mind fully comes alive when I am open to the spiritual dimension of life. That I am not closed off to the areas of life that science can't tell me anything about. That there is more to life than chemical reactions and scientific theories and that that's what Jesus speaks to and that's the reason I am a Christian. That Jesus wants me to be mentally aware and alive and that Bible study is the most intellectually and emotionally challenging activity I can engage in. I need to be ready. People today believe that Christianity is restrictive. It is a misconception. And so I need to be prepared to carefully explain that we really need boundaries and limits to thrive. I talked about that last week when we talked about creation. That I am freer in Christ than I ever was outside of Christ. That to truly accomplish anything great, we have to be limited and focused. And that sometimes that's going to mean there are things I don't and shouldn't do. So you may view that as restrictive. I view it as liberating and powering. But most of all, when we're explaining those kinds of things, we have to be able to keep our cool. We have to be able to, with gentleness and respect, give people the benefit of the doubt. Just because people have been misinformed doesn't mean that they're evil. It just means that they need more information, and we can provide that for them. How do Christians respond? Don't return evil for evil. Look in verse 9, 1 Peter 3 and verse 9. 1 Peter 3, 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So, if we are going to be maligned and misunderstood and misrepresented, we can't turn around and then malign and misunderstand and misrepresent others. Very often, we easily paint those who reject us as bigoted and closed off and shallow, and that's not fair. We're returning evil for evil. Don't be overcome by their evil. Christians operate with a different spirit. And finally, Christians respond by suffering for Christ and not for themselves. Look with me quickly in chapter 4 and verse 12. 1 Peter 4 and verse 12. It says, 1 Peter 4 and verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let not, none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So he says, embrace suffering, because when you suffer, you're sharing in Christ's sufferings. But he makes a distinction, and I want to point this out. Not every suffering is righteous suffering. When we do dumb things and suffer for them, that's not suffering for Christ. When we do evil things and suffer for them, that's not righteous. There is no virtue in those sufferings. So let me, let me say that a little more clearly. When you are a jerk and you suffer for it, don't act like that's for Jesus. When you have some kind of strange political view 
and people don't understand you and they badmouth you, don't act like that's for Jesus. Or if you like to argue and people don't like that, don't act like that's for Jesus. But when you are earnestly trying to follow Jesus and adopt his character and become the kind of man or woman he calls you to be, and people, people look at that and they ridicule it and they spit on it and they mock it, rejoice that you share in Christ's sufferings. Glorify God in the name that you wear. That's what Peter is saying. It's okay to be misunderstood. If we are misunderstood, we are in good company. When we suffer by being less popular, we can embrace it. And when we suffer because people listen less to us, because they already think they know what we're going to say, we can embrace it. And as grim as it seems, please hear me, it won't stop God. God's not going to be stopped because some people don't have a good understanding. And he's not going to be stopped because some people say ugly things about us. So our goal is to be willing to suffer for that and trust that God will take it and turn it into his glory. So the question I have for you as we close, would you like to learn more about that? Maybe you have some misconceptions or some questions about the faith of Jesus and you need to study more and learn more. I would love to have the opportunity, any of us would love to have the opportunity to sit down and talk about what the Bible teaches about Jesus and about the faith that comes from following Jesus. And if you're ready to do that, we'd love to do that. Please just let us know about that. But if, at this time, I want to offer the invitation for those who are ready to give their life and put their faith in Jesus. And you're ready to turn away from your sins and to live for him from now on and to be baptized into Christ, to have those sins washed away, to become a child of God. It is an awesome thing. It is what has changed our lives and brought us together and brought us here this morning. And if you're ready to join that group, if you're ready to accept that call, we invite you to come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.